This is the Home Pro Success Podcast, bringing you interviews with today's home improvement leaders and trades business game changers. Tune in to get actionable insights to grow your own business. Here's your host, Corey Phillip. Alrighty, alrighty. First thing first, if you're not already a member of our Facebook group, the Home Pro Sales and Marketing Lounge, head on over there, join the group, look for a link in the show notes somewhere around this episode, wherever you're listening to this podcast, head on over there. We're at nearly a thousand members. By the time this episode publishes, we might be over a thousand members. Either way, it's an awesome resource. Lots of great insight in there from other trades business owners all focused on sales and marketing, the stuff you need to grow your business. Now, joining me in today's episode, I've got Nick May, a painting contractor doing some awesome things in his business and with his marketing and social media. We get into talking about how you know when it's time to bring someone else on board in your company. His must-read book for service businesses. And let's clarify, that's not a book that he wrote, but just an awesome book that he suggests. A big stumble that he had while he was building his business and the great lessons he learned from that roadblock. Some tips on working with a digital marketer and how he's doing on Facebook ads and how he's getting over a million dollars a year in business from his Facebook ads. Let's jump into this awesome conversation with Nick May. Nick, thank you for joining us on the show today. How's it going out there in Denver? It's going well, Corey. Thanks for having me. What's the weather like out there? Warm, cold? Well, at this time of the year, it depends on the hour, I guess. Today's looking pretty good. We have sunny skies. It'll probably be in the 60s. That's not bad. I've spent a fair amount of time in Colorado. Love it out there. And I'm slightly, slightly jealous. You guys have awesome, at least awesome summer weather. Never been out there in the winter, but you got the awesome summer weather. I like doing all the mountain biking and all the outdoor stuff. And yeah, I really can't wait to get back out there again this summer. Spent a few months out there and so envious you've built an awesome business out there. Now you're in the trade of painting. So you've been doing that for 19 years, which is quite a long time. And you've built a remarkable business, well-rated business that's doing extremely well and thriving. So why don't you tell us how you got started in there and kind of the process and everything you've, not everything you've experienced, but how you ended up where you are now. Well, I actually started painting back in college. I grew up outside of Chicago and I started with a college painting company called AAA Student Painters, who's no longer around, but it's very similar to the College Pro painting model and basically ran a, a franchise for them. My very first summer, that was my freshman year in college. After that first year, I thought, well, I don't really need these guys because they didn't really provide a lot of value. So I went off on my own and ended up running a, a painting business doing basically the same thing for the next three to four years. And when I got out of college, my plan was go get a marketing position, go do sales, something in that, in those lines. And I finished up down in South Carolina. I started up North in Illinois and then, and then moved my junior year down to South Carolina and was getting married and doing all that kind of stuff. And the job market wasn't fantastic. My wife, after she graduated, we decided to move to Denver, had a couple of jobs, didn't really like any of the the jobs that I'd had. And after we had bought our first house, I came home, I guess it was uh, New Year's Eve, and I announced to my wife that we were going to paint. So we went to Home Depot at you know 7.30 at night. And part of that process is why we got into painting as we were waiting for paint. If you've ever been to Home Depot, you know the paint counter can 
be fairly busy. And little did I know that on New Year's Eve, a lot of people would want to be painting. And it was- I did not know that. (laughs) Yeah. A little known fact, I guess. But if you've been to Home Depot, you know, there's typically one guy behind the counter and that's that was the case this evening. And there was probably, I don't know, half a dozen families in there trying to get paint. And while I was waiting for our paint, I started helping everybody that was there decide, oh, you need that roller, this brush, or this primer, or you should use that finish. And so that was kind of the aha moment that I had because I had been sitting in a cube for about six months doing inside sales for a telecommunications company, trying to figure out every day, what the hell should I do with my life? And so that drive home was was very pivotal. And by the time I got home, I decided that I was going to quit my job. And that's what I ended up doing. But uh, it took about three months to figure out how to start the company again and did some very traditional door flyers and a little bit of knocking on doors. And by the time I quit, I had probably a month or two of work booked out for me and somebody else. And then I was off to the races. That's awesome. So before you quit, you had a month or two of work already booked out. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, it wasn't very different than the, what I had experienced every year in college because I'd be off at school, especially the latter half of my college career. I was way down in South Carolina and I would come home at spring break. I would do a little bit of marketing, book a few jobs. And then as soon as I got home in May, I would do the same thing. Just go out, do some flyers, book a couple more jobs. And then it was just, that's the way you did every summer. And so I knew the formula. It wasn't very hard especially when you only have plans to have one helper, it's not very hard to book out. You know, you know, today, two months worth of work would be somewhere around $300,000 worth of business for us. But back then it was, uh, you know, probably $25,000 worth of work and we were set for a while. So, and that's the busy time. That's when everybody's looking to have their exteriors done. So it was, it was I knew it was a fairly safe bet. Yeah, absolutely. I always joke about this with my current business partner in Gulf Coast Aluminum and the amount of work capacity that we can do now, now that we're almost seven years into it. You know, we'll be like, oh, sales are a little low this month. And then we'll just kind of have a flashback moment. Like, hey, remember year one, if we had this much sales, we wouldn't have known what to do with ourselves. It would have taken us, you know, a year to get through it. And it's just kind of remarkable. And it's really powerful too. Obviously, once you get the systems built up and you can kind of throw this much work at it. So, Having gone from managing the painting franchise to actually owning the franchise, did you notice any difference? Was there anything that you thought was going to be different about an owner, about being an owner? Or was it basically the same as what you were doing already managing the franchise? Yeah, it was pretty much the same. I mean, they didn't call it a franchise, but we had a 30% commission that I had to pay to the company for them to bless me and to say that we were a part of their organization, even though I had to get my own insurance and I was a subcontractor for them. We had to use their marketing materials, but it was a pretty big racket. I don't know how other guys were able to make money. I mean, I basically was able to pay for my equipment that summer only after I had done like a side job, you know, when you're in, I mean, I was learning everything. I didn't know how to sell. I didn't know how to paint. I didn't know how to, you know, so there's, there wasn't a thing that I wasn't in the middle of learning. And even, even after I came back to it, when I first started my business, I mean, especially looking back what I know now, but even then I didn't know anything what I was doing. I didn't even know how to paint interiors. Like I remember, (laughs) you know, we started it 
And I just focused on outside because that's what I knew. But very shortly into it, I knew, hey, if I'm going to do this year round, I better figure out the interior game too. And I remember hiring somebody that that had done a lot of interior painting. And I remember asking him, okay, now how do you do the tape cock thing on the baseboards? Like, how do we do that? And so, I mean, I was literally learning. I've, and that's pretty much my whole life. Like I've just, I decided to do something. I'm going to go learn the hard way, typically, how to do it right. And it's turned out, I guess, okay. It somehow, somehow pulled it all off. Yeah. So it sounds like for you, the hard work was, you know, initially there when you're a freshman in college, that would put you at 19 years old. You dive into this head first as a subcontractor slash franchisee, whatever you want to call it, you know, paying the main company the blessing. And here you are, you just have to kind of jump in and figure this whole thing out. Is that basically what you did. Am I hearing that right? Yeah. I mean, they brought us out to like some hotel conference room for the week of spring break and, you know, taught us all of their, their processes. We had this big red binder and it was, you know, telling us how long a a six pane window would take to paint and how long a door should take to paint and how to, you know, add all the numbers up to make sure that you're making money. And, but I did, I had very little hands-on painting experience. I think they lined up a job at the beginning or at probably the end of school. We were still probably in school. So before summer had gotten out and they kind of had us out there and they were showing us how to paint, but man, I knew nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I feel sorry for those first customers I had that first year. Truth be told, I do feel sorry for my first customers. I'd obviously done this work as a teenager doing the trade myself. So I knew what to do. And then I worked for general contractor through college, handling permitting, sales administration, stuff like that. So when I was going at this and starting my business just out of college, just like you were, I was 22 at the time. So I was 2012. I thought I knew what I was doing. But for me, getting into it and starting the business was radically different than what I actually thought, particularly on the human resources side. But let's kind of go back to where you're at. So you've actually started this business now. You're a young adult and it's you, one employee, and you've got it booked out for two months. Obviously, that was 20 years ago or so. At this point, a lot has changed. You've got a thriving business. You've got over 20 employees and the capacity to handle a lot of work. I'm not going to ask for everything you did to get there because certainly there's been a lot. But what were some major turning points where you kind of really grew in terms of business development and really had some breakthroughs and said, hey, this is something that's really going to change or maybe in your case, you didn't know it was going to change something, but it did change something inside of your business. And you were finally at a point where you could let things take off or take a step back from the business. Well, I've never been afraid to try things. I think there's a lot of people, business owners included, entrepreneurs, that they get a lot of good ideas and a lot of folks don't take very much action on them. They say, oh, I'd love to do a million dollars this year, and, and but they never do anything different. Well, I'm kind of the opposite of that. I've, I've never been afraid to try. I'll try a million things, throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. And so over my 20 years, I've learned a lot you know, basically by just doing, and there's a term called failing fast. And so that's pretty much been my MO, taking lots of action, seeing what works, making tweaks. You know, I've I've had the curse or the benefit, I guess, of riding out a few different economic cycles. And so I've, I've learned what that's like, you know, when you're young, and this was especially my case, I thought I was indestructible and, and, when the economy is good, you think it's always going to be good and that it's never going to tank. 
And so you have this kind of like when you're a teenager and you just feel like I'm indestructible, nothing I do, uh, I'm going to fail at. And so when I first started my business, we were in a very similar economic landscape to what we are now. The economy was screaming. I remember being on an exterior job in a very, you know, kind of wealthy neighborhood, gated, gated community. We're painting the outside of one house. A guy walks up and says, you know, we'd really like to get an estimate on the exterior of my home. I just lived down the street at the end. And he says, I've called three people and nobody shows up. And I was like, well, I'll be down there in 30 minutes. Is that okay? And he says, yeah, that'd be great. We ended up booking the outside. And then I also booked the interior. It was probably my first big interior project. The guy was retired from Microsoft. So he had a ton of money and really just wanted it done. And so that was kind of the, you know, that was kind of the environment. It's like you showed up, you got the job. And so it's not very different, you know, today where people are having a hard time finding contractors. Now what becomes difficult is when, you know, you go into the scenario of, of 2007, you know, and after we've had a little bit of economic turmoil and, you know, things aren't looking so good. So those are the times I think I've learned the most, but I'm a student of business and I always have been. Probably my love is, is marketing, a marketing degree. And so I'm constantly learning. I probably not too dissimilar to you. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I read or, or listen to a lot of books on Audible. And so I'm constantly trying to educate myself and understand how do I do things better. I think probably one of the things that I'm particularly good at is understanding what I am good at and what I'm not good at. And so I've done a good job of building team in my organization. And when I was able to do that, and that was a pivotal point for me to kind of go back to your original question, probably five, six years ago now, where I decided, okay, even though I'm good at marketing, I need to have somebody that that's their job, right? So, because once you get to a certain size, you can't deal with this peaks and valleys thing that most contractors deal with, most entrepreneurs deal with. And so we, I needed a way to level that out a little bit. And so I looked at the landscape of business and marketing and said, okay, if I'm going to win long-term, I need to invest into knowing digital, right? And so I reached out and I talked to other people that, that I knew were doing a good job. So one guy I saw, I'm not a TED talk, but some kind of talk online. I don't remember where it was actually held, but it was um, with the folks from Infusionsoft. And so he was speaking at their yearly gala or whatever. And he was a paint contractor up in, up in Canada and was just crushing it. And funny thing was Brian had a, a very similar backstory to me. He had started at AAA Student Painters in college and grown this thing to multi-million dollars. And so I reached out to him and said, well, what did you do? Like, how did you get there? How did you under, start to understand? Because he, he was like me, he's probably my age. And so, you know, so we didn't grow up with all this digital. I mean, when I got to college, I remember my very first email account, right? And so probably AOL or there was AOL with the well, dial what tone. Else, what and else did they, have? they had Lycos back then too. All that stuff. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and so I knew that I've got to figure this out. And so he had hired somebody. And I remember having the conversation with Brian and he said, yeah, I just, I hired somebody full time. And the reason for him was he felt like if you need experience with this and so have I of going to a bigger agency and you end up getting like the intern. And so you're not necessarily getting the owner. You're not getting a dedicated person. They don't really understand your business. 
And so hiring a college intern is basically what we ended up doing. I knew I could teach him my business, what we did. And with his knowledge of internet marketing and, and business, he could grow, we could grow together. And that's what we ended up doing. So now I've had a digital marketing director for two years. And it was really one of the biggest things that, that impacted my business because then marketing wasn't really a problem anymore. Because even though marketing was always my thing, I knew that it, it kind of like the landscape had changed. Like I, I needed to spend way too much time trying to figure the, those things out. And so I knew if I found somebody that that could be their full-time job, then we could win long-term. And so that was a huge piece for me. And to support that, I did some more research. Like I would Google like paint contractor Seattle and this company sound painting came up and then reached out to them and said, well, you know, I'm a paint contractor in Denver. I'd love to know, how are you doing? And they had the same kind of story. Like they had one person dedicated to understanding the digital landscape and was constantly marketing their business. So that would probably be, the biggest impact of my business as far as really going from, you know, when we made that transition, we went from probably just under a million dollars to, you know, a million and a half, then two million. And so that was a, that was a huge milestone for us. And you say that transition, you're talking about the point when you realized A, that digital marketing was the way to go and B, at the same time that you needed to bring somebody else on board to handle that. Yeah, I needed a team member, even though that that was, you know, what we end up, we as business owners is, well, A, a lot of business owners think I'm good at everything. And if you can kind of get past that and you kind of understand, okay, I'm not really great at the financials or I'm not really great at managing people or, or whatever it is for you, then you've got to figure out, okay, how do I hire somebody to do those things that I'm not good at? Well, for me, it wasn't that I needed somebody, I was already good at marketing, right? But I needed somebody that could hundred percent because I had too many things on my plate. I couldn't give it the attention it needed to grow an organization. So, you know, cause now we have 10 teams and if we have a slow three, four weeks, it's like, it's devastating. It's devastating. Absolutely. I mean, it gets tough on morale. The guys are wondering if they're going to have a job. Your bank account is getting a little bit light and then you're considering, well, we might have to lay people off. Yeah. When you reach a size of scale, slow weeks are really, are really painful. Yeah. But if you've got that funnel built out, so you've got consistent calls coming in and you have a very long lead time. So in our industry, a long lead time is really anything over three weeks. And a lot of guys in the painting industry, they, they start freaking out when they're three weeks booked out, right? Three to four weeks. And then they start hiring guys. And I think the guy's name is Mike McCorowitz or McCowowitz. I know who you're talking about. We'll link to him in the show notes. I, I don't exactly know how you pronounce that last name, but I know exactly which name you're trying to pronounce. But I learned a very, very pivotal thing from that guy. And that was what most business owners do is they, they get to that point, they hire more people, right? And then a couple of weeks go by, then things slow down a little bit. Well, then they start to panic and then they start lowering their pricing. And then you're doing work at not great margins. And so it's that cycle of, you know, you get through that and you grow. And so you never get super profitable. And so when I decided to hang on and kind of get out past that month area, and then we got to about a month and a half, uh, that seemed to be a really great position for us because then we never felt like we needed to really discount our work. And we can always just say, well, I'm sorry, you know, we can't be there in two to three weeks. And, and we lose a lot of business because of that. 
but I'd much rather have the other side of it where we're charging, you know, full pricing. I went to an estimate yesterday. It was a $6,000 project for us, which is a bigger, our average job size is about $3,500, $3,700. And we openly talk about it. Like we, we have it on our website. We have it, our office folks talk about it when they call in, Hey, just so you know, we're six to eight weeks out, just depending. And, and people are okay with it. And it really tells the story that we're busy. Exactly. That's where I was going with that. I think in a sense, it almost establishes a little bit of social proof and, hey, we've got so many customers, we are this far out. Obviously, there's going to be a line somewhere where if you're telling people you're four months out, people are going to hang up. But four to eight weeks, I think there's a reasonable time for most trades businesses that are doing well. And in the last 15 minutes, you've said a lot. So I just kind of want to go back to one <laughs> thing you said, and that was that you tried a lot of things and a lot of things failed, but some things work. Essentially, that's what you said. I, I can't, don't quote me on that. Obviously, once this is done and published, you could go back and listen, but that's basically what it boiled down to. And I really, really, really love that. It's just something I think that everyone needs to consider because so many people kind of look for this golden path and golden road. And then they look at people that have done well and see what they're doing, but what they miss is all these failures that have happened off to the sides of that. Yeah. And one of the the examples I, I've been using recently, I don't know why it just popped up in my head, but you know, we've had a, we've had some rough stuff this summer and I shared it in one of my private groups with paint contractors. And some of the guys were giving me a hard time for being so transparent, but I said, you know, Steve Jobs built one of the most amazing companies in the world. He got fired his business was failing. His business was failing and they were in the right to get rid of him. That is so true. I forget what was that? 88, I believe he was booted out of there. I don't know what year it was, but he was gone. That's where, when he built Pixar. And so we see all these businesses and we just think they've always been successful, that they'd never have any failures and they never have things go wrong. You know, we lost last spring, we literally had a mass exodus of all my office staff. And so right as we were getting into the busiest part of our year into summer, we had to restaff and retrain the whole office staff and half of my production managers. And so we weathered that storm and we put new people in place and we learned from what we were doing wrong. And now the organization like customer satisfaction is huge and we don't have problems and or at least the same problems, you know, but when you see a successful business, it's kind of like that iceberg, right? You see that, that little tip that's sticking out, but you have this huge, massive chunk of ice under the, under the surface of all the failures that nobody ever sees, right? Yep, absolutely. Jim Collins in the book, Good to Great, talks a lot about this and gives a lot of great examples, dozens of them, way beyond, you know, what we could talk about here of CEOs of major companies far larger than any trades business that any of us are going to be involved with and gives examples of what they did that's failed. And he referred to it as firing bullets than cannon. So in other words, all the successful CEOs and business owners that he studied that had had extreme success that qualified to be case studies in this book, one of the things they all did was they tried a lot of little things. They put a constraint on it and they measured it so they'd know when to stop it so they could stop it quickly if it was failed or failing. And the things that were working, they leveraged those up. And he called it firing bullets, then cannons. And that is kind of one of the big takeaways from the book 
good to great. If you're into reading, it's certainly worth picking it up. Another book that's very similar to that, but better for small business. I tried to get through, I mean, everybody talks about that book and I tried to get through, it's too textbooky for me. There's another book that's very similar to it that talks about some of the same principles, but is more drilled down for small business. And that's called Small Giants by Bo Burlingham. Love that book. You'll, if you love small business stories like I do, you'll love that book. Yeah. There's always so much to learn in it. You know, talking about learning here, you mentioned that last year you fired or not fired, but lost all of your office staff or nearly all of them. What did you learn from that? What did you take away? What was causing the problem? And what did you realize you needed to do differently? Because as you were telling that, you obviously can't see my face, but I'm cringing with pain because I've gone through that scenario twice. Oh, you have? Yes. Where we've basically lost, you know, three quarters of our staff in one day. We've kind of gone through that. Well, we had one really bad day early on and then you know, I've kind of gone through other bad days like that. There's another bad day in there. But what did you guys learn in your experience? Because, you know, that comes rather late in your business. Well, I don't want to say late in your career, but in the cycle, you know, you've been around. I went through this pain early on in the first couple of years, and it's been smooth riding since we've corrected that. But, you know, tides are always changing. Things are always changing. The business world is always changing. And here you got hit with it you know, nearly 20 years into business. What did you figure out was the problem and what are you doing differently? Well, one of the uh, problems I had was I had my office manager was my mom. So six years ago, I mean, we didn't grow super fast early on. I had a lot of kind of ups and downs in my first probably 15 years of business and things have gotten stable in the last five to six, I guess. But as I started to grow again after the, uh, the economic meltdown, my family and I were taking a vacation and we were going to the Dominican Republic. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I've been there. I went on the vacation and everything went south. Well, no, it wasn't. Nope, no, that's not where you're going part, with this. This is the good part of the story. Yeah. Okay. Right. And I realized, oh my gosh, I can't like not answer my phones for a week. Right. And because at that point I had nobody in the office, it was just me and then painters. And so I called my mom and my mom had been looking for a job. She lives in Chicago and I said, you know, mom, could I just send you a, a cell phone? Could you answer my phones for this week and just set appointments? I'll give you my access to my calendar, all that. Sure. No problem, Nick. So I came back and she's answering phones and it was fantastic. I was like, this is awesome. And so we just continued that, right? And then we started needing more and more people. So we started to staff up in the office, but we had this weird dynamic because my mom, you know, it's weird to have the boss's mom, you know, so so that that just provided a lot of weirdness in the office and she wasn't here. So there wasn't this daily interaction. And so then what ended up happening, I was trying to figure out at that point, like how do we transition my mom out of the business and not being such a, a major piece of the business? And then my dad got sick and my dad came down with cancer. My mom needed to take care of him. And at one point, there was like three weeks, my mom hadn't done a thing. Like I was still paying her, but she didn't, she wasn't in the office at all. And so finally I went to my mom. I was like, mom, you've got to take care of dad. And at the same time, my mom's health started getting bad too. And so my mom left, right? Leaving one other office person. Now we were already trying to hire somebody else in the office and we were struggling with getting another person in the office. But then all of the activity was going down on one person. And so that person only took it on the chin for about two weeks. And then she's like, I'm out. I can't do this. 
And so we had hired one person, but they were training, right? There's all this office stuff you got to learn. So then we quickly tried to hire another person. And so part of that was, was just, I am not a believer of hiring family. And I tell everybody, don't hire family because if you do have a problem, how do you get rid of them? There's no good way. Right. So this was probably the best way to get rid. I waited until they they had to leave, but it was like instant. Like my mom couldn't give me notice. Like there was no like transition out into somebody else. She was just gone. And so that made for, you know, really hard situation. I think what I've learned from the situation, I've always been really big on redundancy. And I also know that everybody that works for you will leave your company. It's a matter of when and how. And so you have to build into those people that they love their job. You have to build a relationship with them so that when they do decide to leave, they're giving you plenty of notice, right? So you can make those transitions. I have a guy, we have what we call our logistics manager and he moves all of our equipment around town and he's a student and he just told me last week, he said, you know, Nick, I'll probably be moving on in about four months. That's the kind of notice I need, right? That is awesome. Yeah. And unfortunately, we often don't get that kind of notice, but I think that speaks volumes for what it says about just having a positive relationship with your employees and making them feel respected and comfortable and at home. Getting those kind of notices are invaluable because it sure as hell beats it sure as hell beats those text messages at six AM on a Monday morning that say, I won't be in today and I won't be in ever again. Those are painful. Those can really throw a wrench in your plan. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, let's segue into marketing here because we're both marketers doing a lot of marketing stuff for our businesses, particularly online. Just another quick jump back to where you had this realization of online marketing. What year was it? What year did you really start going digital with things? Well, I probably, this was probably back in 11 or 12. Okay. 2011, 2012. Would be my guess when I started to realize, okay, I've got to go in this direction. I've got to figure this out. And then Tyler came on board with us. It was um, two years ago, actually right around this time where I posted an ad and I was looking for a digital marketing intern, right? I was advertising a $12 an hour part-time position. And this kid answered my ad. He lived in Connecticut. And I was like, really? You want to move to Denver for 12 bucks an hour, right? <laughs> and he's like, yep, I do. <laughs> Well, I did hear one thing yesterday. I was listening to a podcast about outdoor sports and triathlons and stuff. And somebody's talking about in Colorado, the cool thing about it is everyone wants to be there and nobody's trying to go anywhere else. Yeah. Well, there's been a little bit more because the cost of living has, has gotten pretty high out here now. And we are seeing a little bit more of that transition. There's not so much of an influx anymore, but yeah, it's getting tough. And, and especially to run a a blue collar kind of company, you know, where guys aren't making, you don't have a, a boatload of people making a hundred thousand dollars a year, right? And you make $50,000 a year in Denver and you're like just scraping by, right? Oh, I totally understand. But it sounds like that's the type of person you found that wanted to move from Connecticut to Denver. So you got real lucky there. So he moves on out to Denver. What I did was, and this is what I do with most hire, most new hires is I give them a test. I say, all right, this is going to be part of your your job. If you come to work here, why don't you do this? And I, at that point, I think I was really big on backlinks. That was a uh, 2012 was your backlinks for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I said, make me a list. I said, you don't have to do this, but I want you to make me a list of all the places you think we should have backlinks. And I said, you've got 10 hours. I'll pay you for that. And then just, you've got a week to do it. 
get back to me. Well, in three days, he came back and he had this really great list. And not only had he done that, but he'd done a market analysis of my company, found out that I was a podcaster and how we could parlay podcasting in with the business and a few ideas of what we could do. And so I was like, you're hired. When can you come? And so he came, he moved out. I think by the end of the first day, I said, all right, you're going to be full-time because he was way better than I thought he was going to be. And we've since broken off our marketing department off into a separate company. And now he kind of manages all of digital marketing for, for that. That's awesome. So he's been with you guys now for six years. No, there's two years. Two years. Oh, I'm sorry. It was, I thought it was 2012 that you guys hired him. No, 2012 was when I started to think, okay, I've got to get my button gear and understand digital marketing. And so that's when I was doing my research, contacting other paint contractors, learning a little bit more about the space. And then finally, two years ago, really said, okay, I don't know if I can afford this, but let's do it. And you brought him on and that's worked out pretty good. I believe that everyone needs to have a marketer on their staff at some point. You know, if you really want to scale, you can't be relying on outsourcing it because this is going to go perfectly into Facebook ads, but your best advertising content is going to come from stuff in-house. It's not going to come from stock imagery and stuff that's written by somebody at a marketing agency a few hundred miles away. The best marketing content is the pictures, the videos of your team actually out there doing the work and showing what goes on inside your company on a daily basis, along with the organic copy that's written to go along with that. Would you agree with me? Yeah. I mean, definitely that's a huge piece of it. You know, I think before we got into this, you know, I talked a little bit about SEM and, and doing Google ads and that's a powerful tool. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that just don't like they're smaller, right? So we do, I do a lot with just paint contractors. I do some business coaching per se. And there's a lot of guys out there that, that are, you know, one guy with maybe two helpers, you know, those guys can't bring somebody full-time, nor do they have the time to do it, you know? And so there are ways to manage that, but thankfully when you're that small, you don't need that many jobs, you know? So Facebook ads can be a very effective and efficient way to market the business. Absolutely. So what have you found that's working particularly well for you in your Facebook ads? And are you doing a lot of Facebook ads or am I misreading? What no, we actually do a talk, Corey, that I've titled How I Sold a Million Dollars on Facebook. And so we've done well in excess of that now. That was, gosh, I don't know, a couple of years ago that we, over the course of two years that we did that. And that was all me. That wasn't you know, Tyler helping me, but that was me figuring out Facebook. And I always tell people, I kind of go against the grain again, just like I was telling earlier on in the story where I wasn't really a pain contract. I've learned everything the hard way. I'd learned Facebook the hard way. I, I did it. I learned it just by doing and, and doing things that made sense. And we got really great results. Several years ago, before I brought Tyler on, I answered an ad on Facebook that said, hey, if, you, if you'll commit to spending $300 a month or something like that for three months, we will give you a, a coach. And it was through Facebook. And so when I signed up for it, they contacted me and they said, all right, well, let's, we can set a schedule and, and we've got uh, an opening in three weeks. And I was like, what? I can't wait three weeks. So I said, all right, that's fine. We'll set that appointment. But in the meantime, I started playing around with it. And just doing boosts and, and whatnot. And then I was excited because then I was really going to finally get an education from these people from Facebook. And so I remember the call 
And she gets on there and she's showing me all the back end of Facebook and the ads manager and whatnot. And I just, I'm not a technical guy. Like I, it was just way over my head. And I just, I was like, I don't know. And so I kept doing the boosting of just posts, like super simple, right? Just on my phone and continued with them over the course of three months and really couldn't, I never could get on the page with working, using the back end and really understanding all the analytics that it shows. But in the process of that, I kept tracking the dollars I was spending and I was tracking the jobs that we were getting and, and the amount of money that we were getting. And I remember I walked into my, into the bathroom one morning, my wife, my wife was getting ready. My wife is like my sounding board, right? With all my ideas. And usually it's, you know, that's a bad idea, Nick. She's the voice of reason. And so I said, you know, hon, I think I've figured something out. Like I've spent a thousand dollars now and I kind of cringed by even telling her that on Facebook and I've gotten, you know, $10,000 worth of work back. And she's like, well, you should probably spend more then. <laughs> I was like, all right, I got the green light, right? <laughs> and so I was very excited about that. And that's what we just started doing. We just started spending more and more money. And the way I was doing it was completely opposite of everything that I've ever been told about marketing. You know, in marketing, they always say, you got to have a clear call to action. You need to have, you know, a great headline and a great, you know, do this. And I wasn't doing any of that. Like, so my mantra with Facebook and really Instagram and a lot of the other marketing that I do is don't say buy my shit. I love it. And so really what social media is all about is being social. And so if you go to our Facebook page, Walls by Design, you'll never see a post that says, hey, call us today. We'd love to come give you a free estimate or here's our phone number or we have a special going on. You'll never see any of that. All it is is, hey, look at this transformation. This is amazing. Or I think one of my posts right now is, this is our amazing team. And I have just a bunch of pictures of our team. I do a lot of before and after shots. I do a lot of posts that have multiple images, but people want to see the before and afters. And what I found when I did it that way is people would share it and people would comment it on it. Exactly. And so when you have the other side of it, the side that says, buy my shit, nobody comments, nobody shares. It's an ad, right? And nobody wants to be a part of that, but they're all excited about the transformation that you've shown. And then people come to me and say, well, Nick, well, how are they going to contact you? I'm like, well, they figure it out. They message me, they comment on it. They'll ask, they'll say, how do I get an estimate? So then I have the opportunity to say, hey, call my office at, and here's our number, right? Exactly. And that is a much stronger lead than if you're just coming out and saying, call me, call me, call me. When they're asking to get in touch with you, it is very powerful. So that's how we've pretty much done it. Gotcha. So real quick, what is your best performing ad? Like, can you describe what your best performing ad looks like, what it says? I couldn't even tell you, Corey, to be honest. I just know that we track the platform. We don't necessarily track the ads. Like I would have to have a different phone number and a track. Like that's just way too much work for me. We track everything that comes into the office. And so I know what our ROI is on Facebook at, at any given month, right? And I honestly, I'm still surprised what performs. I have an ad right now that we just, we just launched and I wasn't going to do, I don't typically do ads or boosts during the middle of the week, but I posted something yesterday. It was late in the day and it was a project that we just recently did. It was two pictures. So normally I do like eight pictures, right? It was a picture of a wall that was brick, a big fireplace wall. And then it was the after we painted it. We painted everything white. 
And it was just really simple. And I think I just said like, wow, look at this trans- transformation. And you know how they've just recently changed all the algorithms. So nobody's getting anything in the feed. Well, I had within an hour, I had like 50 likes and comments and, you know, hearts and all that stuff. And I was like, holy crap, right? I'd never, I didn't think this would even get much attention. And so then I boosted it and it's continued to do really well. I'm constantly amazed what works and what doesn't, but I'm still of the, have you ever read the book 80-20? I have not. So it's the same. It's all about that principle of 80-20, you know, Pareto's rule. And it's all about, let's try something small. And you said this earlier with the rifle and the shotgun, try something, get some traction, and then let's blow it up, right? Absolutely. And so I just do that. And when I know that when people are commenting on things and sharing and liking, I know it's doing good things for us. And so that's, that's really the only way I, we track well, but we don't track to the minutia. Yeah. At a, at a certain point, you know, tracking to the minutia, like you said, there is just overkill for a small business. You're going to waste so much time and energy tracking and obsessing over it. You really don't need to track that. And we do a better job of that in Google ads. And that's where Tyler, you know, he loves to dive into the numbers and do AB testing and, and do a landing page and do all that kind of stuff. I just don't, I don't have the patience or the really the understanding of how to oh, really I understand. Well. Yeah, it can get technical and mind numbing. And back to your ad, I'll just kind of say this. Some of you guys listening may have seen this ad because if you're in my Facebook group, I post this ad a lot when people ask me what happened or what ads work on Facebook. But it was one of the very first video ads I ever did. I'm out on one of our projects. It was a pool cage painting project. That's where we do. We strip the pool cages, these screen enclosures of all their screen. We replace the fasteners. We do an electrostatic repaint and then we come back out and rescreen. And it's in the middle of the, the process. The whole pool deck is covered up, taped off, plastic everywhere, ladders and walkboards all around. And the crew is actually out there painting it at the time. And I just picked up my iPhone, probably an iPhone 4 at the time. It was probably the first iPhone that had a camera that faces you. So you could like record yourself without holding the phone backwards. And I hold it in my phone, in my hand. And I just start walking around talking about the project. Hey, this is Corey with Gulf Coast Aluminum. We're out here on one of our pool cage painting projects today. This is what's going on. And then the electrostatic machine started making some noise in the background. So that was really obvious. So I just kind of went with it. I'm like, and that's our electrostatic machine. And you can see that hooks up to the pool cage, gives the, gives the cage an electrostatic charge. So the paint molecules are pulled right to it. And I look at the video and I cringe when I'm looking at it. It's my hand is shaky. My speech isn't too good. The quality is low, but to this day, we have not had one ad that performs better. And what we do with that ad actually is we run it as a lead gen ad. So it actually has the call to action button with the form under it. And our video equipment has gotten much better. I've now got an iPhone X or whatever. I've got the little handheld stabilizer. I've got an external microphone, you know, so I'm all gung ho into this video, video ad stuff. But none of the ads, no matter how great we make them or how good the videos are, beats this very first ad from what is maybe 2014. And I'm shocked. It just keeps on giving. It just keeps on churning it out. Yeah. And I think we as business owners are too critical of what we put out. And again, it goes back to my belief of just massive action and just throwing stuff out there and see what, seeing what works because we're wrong half the time. But if you do that... At least half the time. Yeah. We have all sorts of ads that I continue to run because they have really high engagement, you know, number of clicks on the ads. And so like we've got some really great interiors that are you know, down around Christmas and, we're, and you can see the Christmas decorations, but we're still promoting them and, and putting them up 
in the, you know, the middle of summer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that might actually be a good idea because it's a pattern interrupt. People are going to be scrolling through their feed in July and say, you know, what the hell is this Christmas light ad doing here? What are these Christmas lights about? And it's something they're not seeing. So that, that's something pretty interesting. I kind of like that. Alrighty, so on that note, we've been at it now for 40 or 50 minutes. I got to get moving here, get back to running my business. My phone is blowing on up. Real quick though, Nick, you know, you're into the marketing thing. For the people that are listening and they want to kind of take their business to the next level, they've got, you know, some field crew, they've got operations, they really need to fill the sales pipeline. What do you suggest to them? Where do you suggest they look? Gosh, it depends on the size of the business. I do another talk about filling your funnel. You always have to be looking out two to three months in advance to know what you should be doing today because it takes time to do most things. If you need something fast, there's nothing that works better than Facebook and Google. But you have to, I do believe it's it's best to, it takes a while to build that platform, right? So like on Facebook, I have, I don't know, 8,700 followers. It's like a Facebook. ball rolling down the hill. Mm-hmm. And once you start building that followership, I guess it gets easier. It was one of the beautiful things about Facebook is it's like social proof, right? You have people that like it and then that shows up in other people's feeds and, and they think that you've done business with Ann Smith and you've never worked with Ann Smith, but she liked your stuff. And, you know, so Julie Davis thinks that you worked with Ann Smith, right? So all that stuff, it takes time, but that's the fast stuff. You know, we do other things. We do traditional stuff like direct mail. We continue, we still get a good ROI on, on direct mail, but it's also being active in you know different chat rooms and you, know, you guys probably have next door. Oh, next door. Yes. Mm-hmm. And just trying to be proactive on all of that kind of stuff, but it, it's a constant, it's a constant effort. You just can't ever let up, you know, now is the time, you know, it's early November. We've got to be, well, if you're just starting now, you're a little bit behind the eight ball for planning for January, right? You should have been doing that in September and October. So right now we're really got our eye for marketing on, you know, really the spring at this point. So. Wow. So you got to be two steps ahead of the game is what I'm hearing you say, or, well, I guess we could put that into literal terms and say three months ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but that, that speaks a little bit more to the size of the business that we have. You know, if I only had one crew, you know, I could go out in a week and and book up a whole month worth of work, right? But to book out a month worth of work for 10 crews, you know, that's that takes me a little bit of time. So you have to be looking on the horizon based on, you know, your company. If I'm riding a bike and I'm pedaling at, you know, 15, 20 miles an hour, I only have to look so far. But if I'm on the highway and I'm driving, I have to look way further off in the distance, right? That, that's a great example. Good metaphor there. I like it. All right. So lots of good stuff there, Nick. Anything else you want to add to the audience before we part? Any two cents, words of wisdom? We've covered a lot. We have covered a lot of ground. You know, you can't, I had somebody come to me a long time ago and say, Nick, I want to market my company like you do. And the best marketing in the world isn't going to do wonderful things if you don't have good systems and processes behind it. And you have so- to have a good product. No, no marketing can overcome poor service or product. So you have to have all of those things in place. I feel like that's, you have to have that in place first and you have to have a team, like you have to have managers that are all on board that know the systems and you have to inspect what you expect 
And so I can't go out as a salesperson and, and promise something if I'm not 100% confident that my team is going to follow through because then we've set that expectation. And if they fail and they don't do it, then, you know, then they're just mad. And then you lose salespeople. Mm-hmm. There's that. And the biggest thing that I think people in the construction trades fail to do is answer their phone. So if there's anything that somebody can take today and learn from is that you need to make sure that somebody's answering your phone Monday through Friday at least eight to five. Because if you're not, you're losing opportunity based on whether you're paying for those opportunities or whether you're investing time to get that phone to ring. But I've done statistics on you know folks that have answering services and people that don't or people that answer the phones versus people that, you know, they let all their phone calls go to voicemail. And it's, you know, again, depending on the size, but hundreds of thousands of dollars are, are lost every year, even on a small company, if you're not answering your phone. That's some good advice. Good advice. Nick, thanks for coming on the show today. I look forward to having you back in the future. All right. Thanks a ton. You've reached the end of another episode of the Home Pro Success Podcast. Connect with us and join our collaborative Facebook group at homeprosuccess.com.